Good morning. Uh, before we open our Bibles this morning, uh, we have a real treat in store. We're going to be seeing the third version of Paul's personal testimony this morning. And so in conjunction with that, I thought it would be a good idea to ask a brother to share his own personal testimony. And John Love has graciously consented to do just that. So, John, you want to come up now? Good morning, everybody. How are you? Good, good. It's a beautiful day outside. This morning, I'm going to give you the second version of my testimony uh, when I was saved and when I was baptized. And it's the cut-down version a little bit, so this is what I call the nickel version uh, because of time consumption. Consumptions, okay? Anyway, uh, when I was about 17 and a half, uh, I decided to quit school and go into the Navy. My dad gave me a watch, shook my hand, and said, I'll see you when you get back. My mother, on the other hand, decided that we should be baptized before we left. And uh, she took us down, and we were baptized. So when I got in the Navy, uh, one of the things that the Navy does, they're very high on Christian uh, participation. And uh, I used that Christian participation to get out of work because they said, if you come to church, you don't have to work. And it worked for me. <laughs> okay. Uh, Three years later, I'm out of the Navy, and uh, I was running around with this, uh, a friend of mine, this girl, and she introduced me to a little girl in the back row, a little Jewish girl back there with blonde hair and real cute. And uh, I begged, pleaded, and told her I'd take her to Hawaii if she married me and finally consented. And uh, I took her to Hawaii and left her there. <laughs> I ended up in Vietnam. Okay, anyway... Uh, We got married, had four kids, and uh, the kids grew up, and uh, they were Trudy, Chris, Barry, and Tommy, all of which are saved except for one, and we're working on him. He's a work in progress. Uh, as the kids grew older, my health sort of took a dive, and uh, I ended up having a couple of surgeries for hernia operations that really weren't too bad, but the last one I had was the, really the stinger. Uh, after I got out, uh, and it was on top of another hernia, and my heart started giving me problems, and they kept me pretty well out. And a couple of days later, I had an open-heart surgery and a bypass. And I made it through it. And I figured, you can't beat dumb luck, okay? Not thinking that maybe somebody else had a hand in this, the Lord. And uh, then I ended up with, uh, about two years later, a heart attack. They didn't bypass the two in the back that they should have bypassed. And uh, I ended up with a heart attack, and the doctor told my lovely wife to go home and get her children because I probably wasn't going to make it. And uh, she did, and I made it anyway. Uh, my son walked in when they weren't there and put a cross around my neck and said, don't ever take this off, Dad. And I have never taken it off since. And I think that might have had a little something to do with it, and the Lord as well. Uh, then as the, the next time, uh, there was one more to go. I ended up with a hole in my stomach. I had basically a bad back, and I took an awful lot of aspirin. Okay, and it just burned a hole right through the bottom of it. And when it, whatever gets into your stomach gets into that inner cavity and everything like that, most people that do that don't survive. But again, the Lord was sitting on my shoulder, and he kept me alive. And obviously he had something in mind for what for me to do. I had no idea what it was, and I really wasn't looking for anything to do anyway. So I kept, you know, come on, get away from me. But uh, he was very persistent, and uh, he stayed after me. My children grew up and all came to church, uh, Calvary Bible Chapel, and they all got saved. My wife and my daughter got saved. 
my daughter's husband got saved, my youngest son got saved, and his wife, and I was sort of the only one left behind, other than my youngest son, who was still a work in progress. Uh, after a whole bunch of nagging, they finally got me to go to church. Okay, and I said, okay, fine, I'll go. Not a problem. And so I went, and the more I went, the more I learned that I didn't know the Lord, and I didn't know a lot about the Bible. And the Lord kept telling me, you know, you're here for a reason, you know. He just wouldn't come out and tell me what it was. So anyway, as I got more into the church, I got to know a few of the people around, uh, Rick and Eric and uh, a bunch of you other folks that know me. And uh, I took a couple of classes and uh, the road to Emmaus, once by myself and once with my granddaughter, who I couldn't get out of bed on Sunday morning most of the time. But uh, anyway, we got through that. And then Rick gives me a call one day. And... Uh, he says, uh, how about coming over to my house? I'm sorry, Eric, not Rick. <laughs> I get you two mixed up. You're both good looking. What can I say? All right. Anyway, uh, all right, one more time. No. Third time's a charm. Anyway, Eric gives me a call in the afternoon. He says, why don't you come over? And we sit down and we talk. Okay. And he says, I really don't know much about you or your life or anything like that. He says, why don't you, you know, tell me a little bit about it. So we went through the whole thing that I just basically went through with you and everything like that. And he says, if you died right now, are you going to go to heaven? And I said, well, I think so. And he says, you think so? And he says, tell you what, what if I could give you a way that was surefire, it wouldn't cost you anything, and you would be assured of going to heaven? I said, great. He says, all right, imagine yourself. All right, now this is in his front room. He says, imagine yourself sitting in the front room holding onto a rope. Okay, now the rope is burning at the top and burning at the bottom. And there's no place to go but down, and the only place that's down is hell. Okay, and being a sinner, that's where I'd go. And he says, what if I could give you something that would hold on to you and would never let you go, it was free, and you'd end up going to heaven? And I says, I take it. And he says, grab the rope. And I says, another rope. Okay, so here I am standing in this front room with a hand out here on a burning rope. And here on a good rope, okay? And he says, let go. And I just sit there and looked at him. And I go, yeah, okay. And so I let go. And he says, grab on the other rope. So I grabbed on the other rope. And he says, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? And I said, yes, I do. He says, you're saved. And I thought, what did you just do to me? You know, <laughs> really. You know, and I, I had no idea. And it just, you know, it, it, it was such a shock. And I, I thought I was saved. You know, I was baptized, you know, and I used to go to church every once in a while. And uh, uh, it just didn't really sink into really the next day, you know. And I, on my way home, oh, there's another part of the story. Uh, Charlie's not here, but Charlie was supposed to be there. And Charlie showed up late, and he goes, what did I miss? So we had to go through the whole thing all over again. And I let Charlie know what was going on. But on the way home, I called Peggy and told her, I said, you're never going to believe what happened. And she says, what, you know, you got in a wreck or something? I said, no, I just got saved. And she goes, get home. Dinner's ready, and you can tell me about it at home. And I did, and I told her about it. So then... After a while, I wrote out my testimony, about three or four different drafts, because every time I showed it to somebody, he said, oh, you can't have that in there. No, you can't have that in there. And it got down. Well, I sort of fooled him in the long run, because it got down to about maybe double page like this, and I took a whole bunch of pages and pasted them together and put it on a toilet paper roll. And when I turned it over the edge, it rolled all the way down and all the way out into the aisle. Sort of brought the house down. It broke the ice. Uh, but I got paid back for that, because after I gave my testimony, and then Eric again said, I believe it was, do you have, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, come on over here. He almost drowned me. I mean, he put me down in the water and a big smile on his face. He loved every minute of it. But, you know, what is my life now? Uh, 
at first, I wasn't really sure what I was meant to do because the Lord still hasn't told me what to do at the time. And a lot of my friends who were getting older started getting sick and ending up in the hospital, and I started going to the hospitals and talking to them. And I ended up praying with them, all right? And then some of the people here that got sick and ended up going to the hospital, and I went and I talked to them. And a lot of times if you just talk to the people and, you know, and, and get them laughing a little bit, even though they don't feel good. And there was one special, Debbie Hall. She touched my heart. I mean, really, really bad. I'm going to cry. Uh, she's gone, and I spent a lot of time with her. And uh, I'm sorry that she's gone. I'm glad that she went home, but I miss her an awful lot. I really do. And that's basically my testimony. And I think that's what the Lord had in plan for me, is to minister or not really minister, but just talk to people and tell them about the Lord, you know, and, and make them listen. And hopefully it'll make their life better. And if they do pass on, then they're going home and they're in the right place. That's about it. Amen. See, that wasn't that bad. Thank you, John. Okay, let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 25. And uh, I hope you notice particularly one thing, because we're going to mention this several times this morning, uh, the clarity of John's testimony in particular, there was a very clear before, a how, and an after. Did you notice that? Okay, those are the three essential elements of a Christian testimony. We're going to see it again here in the life of Paul. Acts chapter 25. Now, you remember last week, uh, we had a lot of detail about the uh, words and actions of unsafe people. Remember that? And you see these long sections of the book of Acts and you wonder, why has got all this stuff in here? And of course, we saw last week there was a, a clear uh, pattern of deception, right? Remember that? In the middle of which, of course, was Paul's uh, shining example of uh, honesty and uh, truth. Well, we're going to have a similar situation this week. We have two chapters. Chapter 25 is going to be all about this guy named Festus and a little bit about a guy named Agrippa. And you wonder, why does God have a whole chapter in here about these guys that don't know him and they're really not doing anything significant? Well, we'll see, because it's going to tie in again with the life of Paul. I'm not going to give it away. You're just going to, I think you'll see it as we go through why God did this. He doesn't waste his words, does he? Every word he says is uh, tried in the fire like uh, silver seven times. What that means is you put the silver in there and you uh, skim off the bad stuff, you heat it up again, you skim off until there's nothing but pure silver left. So that's what he's done in the book of Acts. And so uh, all this detail about uh, even the unsaved people is here for a very good reason. We're going to see that. Okay, Acts uh, chapter 25, we'll read the first section here, verse 1. Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, 
the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Okay. Uh, You remember uh, we had a different procurator last week. Remember what his name was? Anybody? Felix. Felix. Yeah, we got Felix and then Festus. So we have a change of a leadership here. And uh, Festus begins his rule as the procurator. Uh, Like a good procurator, he goes to the capital city of Jerusalem. He's going to end up spending about two weeks there to get to know, you know, the people over whom he is now going to be the ruler. Good, Good idea, right? Get to know your constituency. That's the idea. And it's incredible. He gets there and the Jews, this is two years now after Paul's first trial in Caesarea. They don't give up, do they? It's incredible. They immediately ask Festus for a favor They want Paul. They haven't forgotten him. And in fact, they still want to kill him. You saw the plot here. And uh, they're no dummies. They know this is a very good opportunity. When a new ruler comes in, he always likes to kind of, you know, ingratiate himself to the people. And they know that. And so they know that there's a very good chance right now when he's coming in fresh, if they ask him for this favor, he's going to grant it to get on their good side. Uh, and then as we begin to read through this, I don't know if you notice, it begins to sound awfully familiar, doesn't it? We're going through the same old thing again. He says, well, we can't do that. You come on down to Jerusalem and accuse them and all that kind of stuff. You know, we've already been through that, haven't we? And so as you read this, have a little sympathy for poor Paul. You know, the guy, uh, he's being held for doing nothing and yet they won't release him because they're afraid of the Jews. And it looks like we're going to go through the same scene again. Well, in 6 through 8, they do come down. Festus listens uh, to the arguments. And uh, Paul summarizes here in verse 8, I haven't offended in anything. And it's true. Festus knows that. But uh, we have this big phrase here in verse 9. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor. Does that sound familiar? Look back, uh, where was it here? Verse 27 of the last chapter. This was the last guy. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So here we go again. Paul's innocent. Both procurators have come to that conclusion, but they're not going to let him go because they know the Jews don't want him freed. And so... uh, 
Paul is facing who knows how many more years now of being held in prison for no good reason. And he's probably getting pretty tired of it. He knows, too, that uh, if he gets sent to Jerusalem, well, he knows what's waiting for him there. Right? Remember what happened last when he was in Jerusalem? The 40 assassins that made the agreement that they, that they wouldn't eat or drink until they'd killed him? Remember that? What do you think those guys are now, by the way? <laughs> yeah, I don't think they've uh, gone without food for two years. And so Paul is not relishing the idea of being sent back to Jerusalem. So this is getting repetitious and there's no end in sight. And it's at this point that unfortunately, a lot of the commentators get on Paul and they say, man, you know, uh, he should have just trusted the Lord here instead of using this. I appeal to Caesar routine. You know, it's in the flesh. And all I can say is uh, I admire Paul for sticking in, uh, out this long. He could have said it two years ago. He could have claimed his Roman citizenship then and said, I appeal to Caesar and God sent her. But he's been languishing in this prison. And by the way, it's not a cushy existence. He's chained to a guard 24 hours a day. Not the same guard. They couldn't handle it. They have shifts. You know, every six hours they changed the guy that he was chained to. That, that's not a pleasant life. And so I, I really uh, admire Paul for hanging there that long. And it's not clear to me that it was out of the will of God that he used this... Uh, possibility to get to rome certainly god never rebukes him for it and so i'd be awfully careful about criticizing the man so he says i appeal to caesar those are the famous words there in verse 11 festus goes away with his counsel and discusses with him because he can deny this appeal and he could come up with some reason if he really wanted to for the same way he can keep him in prison even though he really hasn't done anything but uh, probably, I would imagine, having heard the history of the case and how Felix could get nowhere on it, and now he can't get anywhere on it, he's probably glad to get rid of him. And so he says, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. All right. Now we'll uh, pick up in verse 13. Let's read there. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accuser stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. 
So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had not committed, that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. What do you think? That's probably a good idea, huh? Okay, so now we have uh, a new character. It's King Agrippa. And um, I'm not going to go into the details of the structure and hierarchies of Roman rule, mainly because I don't understand it myself. It's very complex. It changes, in fact, through the years. But let me just say that the proconsul over the smaller region here, which was Felix before and is Festus now, is lower in the hierarchy than Agrippa. Agrippa's a king. So he's ruler over a larger area than uh, Festus. And in fact, Festus is really under Agrippa. And so, in fact, that's why Agrippa happened to come at this time. Festus is uh, the new guy on the block, and Agrippa's going to come to welcome him, you know, the way you'd expect him to do. And he's also a Herod, by the way. Remember, you recognize that name from your Bible, right? Herod? We've got a lot of them. And uh, we're not, I, I'll just tell you that he's the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the one that rebuilt the temple. And I can summarize the Herod family for you. If you were to look at the family chart, starting with Herod the Great and go down through all of them, uh, I just looked at it uh, last night, where it shows their name and born and died. It says how they died, and you see over and over again, assassinated, poisoned, banished, murdered, killed, uh, and often at the hands of their nearest relatives, by the way. Okay, so welcome to the uh, family of the Herods. And Agrippa uh, is just like all the rest of them. Okay, he got there by hook and crook. But, this is very important for today's message, he's a Jew. Now, he's not a purebred Jew. Back Way back, Herod was actually uh, partly Idumean, which, which wasn't a Jew. But by the time we get to Agrippa, he's Agrippa II here, he was raised as a Jew. Now, he's not an orthodox, practicing conservative Jew. You probably suspect that. But nevertheless... He would know about the scriptures, you know. If you mentioned Moses or Isaiah or Abraham, he'd know who you were talking about. And that's going to be important here. Because Paul's going to be delighted to be talking to this guy because of that, you see. He's already got that commonality with him. Uh, just a few comments on this section. We're not going to look at every verse. It was interesting in um, verse 19. Did you notice that? Uh, Festus says, but I had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died. Isn't that interesting? Who's he talking about? The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And in his lips, it's a certain Jesus who had died. Interesting that he says, uh, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Notice how he said he didn't say whom Paul affirmed to be raised from the dead. Notice the difference? 
because this, this guy's a Gentile. It's, it's, it's a laughable idea that somebody actually was raised from the dead. And we're going to see that in a minute. Okay, well, verse 22, it's very interesting. Agrippa seems to really want to hear Paul, and it kind of raises the question of why. You wonder if maybe he hasn't heard about Paul and is curious. Maybe he's heard about the Christians and wants to know more about it. We don't really know. <clears throat> At any rate, in verse 23, here we have, a, you, you just picture some movie, you know, I don't know, Ben-Hur or something, about the old Roman days, you know, when they come in with the fanfare and the trumpets, you know, and everybody's all uh, dressed to the nines and the, and the tiered uh, chairs. And, of course, uh, Festus is going to be sitting on the judgment seat up there. Very impressive uh, scene here. And it says that he had uh, the commanders and the prominent men of the city. So what an audience. Huh? Think about it. I mean, when's the next time somebody's going to be able to witness to a crowd like this? Um, and, we, and we notice poor Festus' quandary here. He doesn't know what to write when he sends the letter along with Paul to Caesar in Rome. He doesn't, you know, what charge can he bring against him? It's not clear. So he's hoping that Agrippa will bail him out. That is, bail Festus out by thinking of something as he listens to Paul to write against Paul. That's the idea. So this is very important. This is not a trial. In fact, uh, Agrippa and Festus are out of the loop now because Paul has appealed to Caesar. So that's where the next trial is going to occur. Okay? So this is just an examination. That's what, that's what he calls it. A discussion. Let Paul talk and let's see as he speaks, you know, uh, what we can get out of it to accuse him of. Well, this is really uh, an opportunity for Paul. He's not on trial. And they open the door by just basically saying, okay, go ahead, start talking. And so you can imagine Paul. So it's not going to be a defense. In fact, he's really not even going to mention the events that brought this thing on, the mob scene uh, before the council, remember, when he said, I believe in the resurrection. Remember, he talked about that all the previous times. He's not going to even mention that. He's really not going to defend himself. Put yourself in his shoes. He sees this as an opportunity to witness to this whole crowd. And that's exactly what he's going to do. And he's going to do it primarily through the use of his own personal testimony. It's, it's wonderful. So uh, we'll, we'll take this a little section at a time now because it's really rich. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 26, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Okay, so there's the introduction. He's really not buttering Agrippa up. I think he's generally speaking from the heart. He's happy to be speaking to a Jew, you know? Can you imagine what it was like in those days? I mean, it's almost as bad as being in the United States today. You have to start from scratch with people, right? You didn't get that joke there, did you? Okay. It, it was like that. You go to a Gentile, you know, they're believing in Jupiter and Mars, you know, and Zeus and all these guys. The true God of the Bible, they don't know the first thing about it. So you can't sit down and say, you know, it says in Isaiah, and they're going to go, what? 
And so Paul now has a Jew who knows the scriptures. Now, like I said, he's not an Orthodox Jew, but he's going to be familiar with all these concepts. He's going to know about the promise of a Messiah, for example. So I think Paul is genuinely excited now to be able to speak uh, to Agrippa here, not to mention the rest of the crowd. Okay, so here we begin now and listen carefully because we're going to start with the before part of his testimony, just like uh, John did. Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? We're going to pause there with that zinger. Okay, um, so he begins, he's really, he's sharing his testimony. He's not defending anything here. He's really going to tell the story of his life, but in particular, how he uh, was saved. And so it's very important to uh, lay out the fact that he was, as he says in Philippians, you know, a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee. I mean, he was the elite. The point is, it's making clear not only to Agrippa, but everybody else. Like, I didn't start out this way as a Christian. Okay, I was just like the guys accusing me. When you share your testimony, you know, it's, it's helpful to indicate that, look, you didn't start out a Christian. Right? You know? Well, I was raised in Sunday school. I can't remember when I wasn't a Christian, you know? Okay. <laughs> That's kind of scary. And so that, this is important, just like John did, you know? And uh, you can imagine the kind of things he was asked to cut out of his testimony, you know? Uh, he didn't know Christ is the point. He's, he was different. It's important because it's going to set up the fact that somewhere something really happened to change this man's life, you see. That's the first thing. Uh, secondly, to speak this way to someone, as John did with us, you immediately open up your, your own heart, your own life in front of people, and you talk about yourself. That breaks the ice for them. You know, it's hard for a lot of people to be, talk on that level, isn't it? You know, let's talk about the weather, you know? or uh, sports or or whatever and so to begin that way and talk about your own life it, it it's helpful to help them to think that way about themselves but also is a third thing it's going to accomplish because at some point you're going to get to the place to where you're going to end up saying i was wrong i had to change that's a hard thing for people to do isn't it and so again to, for you to say that, you know, as John did, you know, live my whole life this way. But I came to a certain point and I realized I didn't know the Lord. And so he that so this before is very important to do all of those things as well as relate uh, to the people you're talking to. And now in verses six and seven, I don't know if you notice, he kind of departed a little bit from that personal aspect. Did you see that? And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. 
for this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. That kind of breaks the flow of his uh, history. He's going to get back to it in a minute. But it's important because you're going to see Paul is actually going to try to reason with Agrippa from the scriptures because he has a man who believes the scriptures or at least knows about them. He's, he's going to use that. So he's starting already with that. He's sowing a seed early about the promise of the Messiah that Agrippa would know about. And it's interesting that he says to this very day, you know, the Jews are working hard to uh, attain that promise and so on, indicating that uh, maybe it's already come, you know, but there's just an introduction. Because just as you may be a little relaxing here after he says that, okay, yeah, fine. I'm familiar with all that. Look at this verse eight. I love this. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Woo. That's great. And that, I, as more I thought about that, that man, that's perfect to say to Agrippa. I do this when I witness to people, particularly out at the lab or, or fellow scientists. You need to stand back and challenge them on their presuppositions about God sometimes. You know, you get embedded down in the individual arguments. Let's just stand back because in my case, I deal with people and I used to be this way, so I know where they're coming from. You begin by assuming that God could never create the universe. It's just, it's too much. There can't be a God like that. Okay? It had to have evolved. You, now you think about it, why do you begin with that assumption? Because people don't want a God that that's great, that's that great, that's why. If you've got a God that is that incredibly awesome and powerful, well then uh, I might have to have something to do with him you see you following me and so i'll take them back to there i say why do we begin with the assumption that that uh, god couldn't create the universe where do you get that rule from who sets the limits on god did you did you decide that did you decide that god couldn't do that how do you know that you understand it's crazy god is who he is it's not for me to decide ahead of time okay well if there's going to be a god you know, he's going to fit into this box and then this box, you know, and then this box. You know, he's going to be the way I want him to be. Well, man, that's crazy. God is who he is. You don't start off assuming he can't be this way. And that's what Paul is doing here with Agrippa. He, he, he might have heard, you know, that Agrippa doesn't believe in the, in the resurrections. A lot, of, a lot of the Jews didn't. And so he just looks him right in the eye and says, Agrippa, why is it an incredible thing to you that God raises the dead? that's great you know and maybe it'll shake a grip up a little bit you know yeah that's right maybe he can he's god you know isn't that great and he's really making this uh testimony by the way personal isn't he (laughs) he addresses him here you know uh names him by name and challenges him okay uh so i think he's really got a grip his attention here by this point and so he returns now to his uh, own personal testimony verse 9 we'll read there indeed i myself thought i must do many things contrary to the name of jesus of nazareth it's the first time he's introduced the lord here this i also did in jerusalem and many of the saints i shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priests and when they were put to death i cast my vote against them and i punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them i persecuted them even to foreign cities wow 
Now, we know all this, but every time you read the Bible, read it with fresh eyes, you know? Kind of start like, I've never seen this before. And you'll, I think you'll appreciate it in a better way. And here, as you read this, and you, and you really understand what Paul is saying, uh, this, is a, this is a chilling confession, isn't it? Think about it. Innocent people have been killed. That's what he just said. And he was behind it. He's a murderer. Okay? Man. I mean, this is the clearest statement in the Bible we have. He says plainly, these guys were killed. And I voted for it. Now, it's interesting. We don't ever see him throwing stones. Even in the case of Stephen, he held the uh, clothing. Does that make him less innocent? Actually, he's the one responsible. He's the guy that voted for it to happen. You know, he kept his hands clean when it came to the actual act of killing them. But he was the one that voted for it. That said, okay, go ahead, kill him. And these words, I'll tell you, he's not, he's not mixing any, any, any words here. Many of the saints I shut up. Put to death. I punish them often. Every synagogue. You get the picture. We knew it already. He's trying to wipe them out. Okay, this is genocide. Paul is trying to get rid of every single Christian that's around. He tried to get them to blaspheme. Now he says he compelled them. It doesn't mean they blaspheme. What it means is he tried his best to get them to do it. In particular, what he means is he tried to get them to deny Christ. Doesn't mean he succeeded. And then this exceedingly enraged... I can just, you know, he can, he can remember the way he used to be. You can just see it as he's saying these words. I remember how I was exceedingly enraged. He's trying to communicate how angry he was against these Christians. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He didn't quit with just Jerusalem or even Judea. He was on his way to Damascus. That's in Syria to hunt him down. If we stopped right here, I'll tell you, if there were nothing more to Paul's testimony, but if it stopped right here, What a vile record of hate and cruelty. He indeed was a criminal of the worst kind. He was personally responsible for the deaths of many innocent people and of causing untold suffering to many more. (laughs) You think about it, he he should be on trial, shouldn't he? Really on trial for murder, for these horrific crimes. Why am I stressing this? Well, because there's a fourth thing that's accomplished here by Paul. He is communicating the idea that no one is beyond hope. If he can be forgiven, anybody can be forgiven. And that's why he's doing this. And Agrippa has participated in a lot of bad stuff. And I think he needed to hear that, to know that, you know. Uh, Paul writes later in his imprisonment, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violently arrogant man, I obtained mercy. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. He's saying, if God forgave me, he can forgive anybody. That's what he's saying. Okay, I, I can't imagine, but Agrippa must just be really uh, enraptured here. You know, really, this is really interesting. I would be. Now we come to part two in the testimony, which is what? 
how I was saved. Yeah. And uh, I love this section in chapter 26 because it's the most detailed account we have of what happened on the road. There are things we find out that Jesus said here that we don't have in the other uh, two sections. So we'll begin reading in verse 12 here. While thus occupied, that is with all of these dastardly deeds, in particular uh, going up to Damascus to herd, uh, round up some more uh, Christians. As I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Okay, now how Paul was saved. Notice, uh, I like it here. He's mentioned several times in verse uh, 12 as one example. He's mentioned the chief priests, the guys that are, accusing him right now and it's it's irony isn't it uh i was on their orders you know i'm going up to damascus with papers i got from them to go round up the christians uh verse 13 uh this is great at midday a, a light shone brighter than the sun it it would have been a little less uh impressive i think if he'd said at midnight there was this bright light but if it's midday, we're talking the sun and its max, right? And he says, this light came and it was brighter than the sun. Yeah, he's not exaggerating, okay? Because there was the sun and it got obscured by this bright light from heaven. Uh, it's important several times he mentions that there were those with him. So there were witnesses. This isn't some hallucination Paul dreamed up. Because they not only saw it, they fell to the ground with him. And I like this. Verse 14, he says, a voice spoke to me in the Hebrew language. I think Agrippa's ears would perk up at that point. And this voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Agrippa's mind's probably working, you know. It's, it's a Jew who's speaking. There must be somebody hiding in the bushes or something, you know. Maybe it's somebody he came to arrest. You know, or maybe somebody who escaped from him, some Christian who is uh, harassing him. You know, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, I could see Agrippa trying to, what's going on here? What is, and what's this light all about? You know, and then there's a little bit of a clue here that this is not just an ordinary person because this person then says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now you think about that. That's what uh, somebody driving an ox would say to the ox or a donkey you understand a master would say to a beast of burden <laughs> you know talking to an animal why it's hard for you to kick against the goat Go, the goat is the thing you know that they prod the animals with when they're stubborn you know that right 
Here is a person talking to Paul and asking him, it's hard for you, or telling him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You know? There's something, there's some kind of a, a relationship here that it's like a master to a beast of burden, and Paul is the beast of burden. Well, Paul doesn't waste any time. He gets to the identity of the speaker. And, and what a, a shocker it must have been to Agrippa to hear this. Because Paul says, when asking who is it, I am Jesus. Now, Agrippa knows that Jesus was crucified. And for Paul to say, this one, this, this voice said to me, I am Jesus. I think it must have really shook him up. I think, uh, I think Paul probably paused a little bit here to let it sink in, you know. And then he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And I think he paused and let it sink in. Let Agrippa think about that. Interesting that Jesus said, of course, whom you are persecuting, because Paul had said earlier, I was persecuting the Christians. And here Jesus says, no, it's me that you're persecuting. His identification with his people. Well, in 16 through 18 now, we have a wonderful section here where this is the first time we find out what Jesus said to Paul beyond the things we heard in the earlier sections. And Paul is doing a very good thing here. He is letting Jesus speak for him to Agrippa because he's going to quote the Lord Jesus and what he said. And if you listen to what he said, it's exactly what Agrippa needs to hear as a sinner. He lets Jesus bring up all the key issues for him. Okay, listen. And by the way, notice the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that he says here. We read this and we take it for granted, but I want you to think about what Jesus is saying here to Paul. First of all, this mere voice, as Agrippa sees it right now, says to Paul, rise and stand on your feet. That's a command. Here is this Jesus telling Paul, get up, stand up. (laughs) Hello. Listen to this. I will make you a minister of me. Think about what he's saying. Jesus is saying to Paul, I'm going to make you my servant. (laughs) This is the guy that's been killing Christians. Okay? Caught in the act, in fact. And this Jesus is telling him, okay, you have a new direction in life, Paul. You're going to be my servant. I will make you my servant, in fact. Think about that. Think about what Agrippa must be thinking right now to hear Jesus talk like this to Paul. In fact, Jesus, uh, if you read what he says here, he, ta- he talks about so many things indicating his power, his greatness, his omniscience, just in these few verses. He says, I will make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Jesus is saying there are hidden things that nobody knows that I am going to reveal to you. Okay? This sounds like God, doesn't it? He's not done. Listen to 17. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. What's he saying? Here's this Jesus who's supposed to be dead 
telling Paul, you're going to get into a lot of serious difficulty, but I will deliver you. Think about that. How is he going to do that? What kind of power must he have? And he says, not just from the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. And you can picture the Gentiles sitting in this big assembly hearing that, you know, who is this Jesus who can supposedly deliver Paul from any situation? Uh, then he says, um, I'm going to send you to the ultimately to the Gentiles, first the Jews and then the Gentiles in verse 18 to listen to these things, open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Wow, there is a mouthful. And just by quoting the Lord, by the way, Paul has now raised the issues of sin, <laughs> forgiveness, repentance. We're supposed to be in a court here where Paul is defending himself against the accusations. Okay, <laughs> he's kind of uh, redirected the conversation, hasn't he? And I've said that before, when you're witnessing to somebody, you're the believer. They don't know God. Don't let them drive the direction of the conversation. You're going to end up going from Dan to Beersheba and get nowhere. Now, that doesn't mean that you're totally insensitive and don't answer questions. Obviously, you do. But be careful. You're the one that knows the Lord. You're the one that, that sees the light. And so take uh, an example from Paul. He's supposed to be here answering accusations. And he says, no, I've got an open forum. I'm going to talk about Jesus. And he uses it uh, to a great extent. All right. So now I think it's wonderful. It's not an accident that he gives this uh, fuller version of what Jesus said, because now we're on a real personal level here uh, with King Agrippa. OK, that was the how. Now the after. Verses 19 to 23. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, where was this help supposed to be coming from? Jesus. To this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great. I love that. He says, I've, I've talked to little people, nobodies, and great people. Who does that include? Yeah, his present audience. Agrippa, Festus, the commanders of the city, and all the prominent people. <laughs> and, and the important thing is, it doesn't make any difference who you are. That's what he's saying. He's saying, small or great, I've sent the same message to everybody because everybody needs to hear this message, including you. That's what he's saying. Saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. Listen to this. Three points that every Jew stumbled on. Number one, that the Christ would suffer. Secondly, that he would be the first to rise from the dead. And third, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, we're running out of time, so we're going to have to wrap it up here. But Paul is really getting ready now to turn to the scriptures, not physically, but verbally. You see, he's already introduced that concept about the prophets earlier. Here he said it plainly. All these things that I'm talking about, they were all prophesied in the scriptures, which Agrippa should know. 
So he's getting ready now to make that transition, you see, to say, for example, it says in Isaiah, you know, however, before he gets to that point, Festus, the Gentile sitting next to Agrippa, can't control himself any longer. And he speaks, in fact, he says in a loud voice, verse 24, now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. You ever had that when you're witnessing to somebody and the person there just kind of, you know, I had somebody turn on the television right in the middle of sharing the gospel, real loud, you know. Well, Festus could be a real distraction here. He's a Gentile. And I think it was the resurrection that really finally did it for him. I think also Festus may be a little uncomfortable here. And uh, I've seen people do this. It's, it's called an ad hominem argument. In other words, you try to discredit the person speaking and so you don't have to believe what they say, right? And so he shouts at Paul, you're mad. And so, in other words, everything you're saying is just a bunch of baloney. You know, you've made all this stuff up. You're crazy. And I think maybe uh, it might have been getting through to him. Note Paul's clear and calm response. But he said, verse 25, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. And then he turns back to Agrippa. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. You see, he's trying to get it back to Agrippa again. And now he does it directly. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. You see where he's going? And I love this. He's addressing this great ruler now. And he says, do you believe the prophets? Now, Agrippa being, you know, a respectable Jew, the natural answer should be, well, yeah. It's like, well, maybe not too much recently in this country, but decades ago, you could ask most people, do you believe the Bible? And most people would say, yeah, that's not true anymore. But when you could do that with a person, you could then say, well, would you like to know what the Bible says? You see, that's why you ask that question, because they don't. And that's why Paul's doing it with Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets, Agrippa? And, Paul would, and Agrippa would probably say, well, yeah. Paul would say, well, let's see what they say. Since you believe them, you know. Now, when he says, I know you believe, he doesn't mean I know you believe the prophets. He means, I know you, you know, you have some sense of believing in the scriptures. That's what he's saying. He's trying to help Agrippa along, you see, you know, in this thing. Well, I wish I could say this thing had a happy ending. You know, I, I really believe, and I think Paul sensed it, that Agrippa was uh, following Paul. He was tracking. And I don't know if it was the interruption of Festus or who knows what. The devil will use all kind of things. But uh, it's a sad thing. Agrippa makes his comment in verse 28. I know it sounds positive, but it's not. It's, it's, an, it's a, a sarcasm. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. He is not saying that like, oh man, I'm close to getting saved. I wish he was, but he's not. He's, he's, what he's telling Paul is, I see what you're doing, Paul. You're trying to, you're trying to uh, uh, save me. That's what he's saying, you see. And also by saying that, he's saying the game's up. You're not going to do that. It's really sad. Uh, and so, but dear Paul, bless his heart. Listen to what he says in response. Verse 29, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today 
might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Isn't that good? But here's the clincher. When he had said these things, the king stood up. That's a sign that the meeting's over, you see. Agrippa gets up. Everybody else gets up. End of meeting. Paul is cut off. And Agrippa, with this little gesture here, not only shut up Paul, but he turned off the voice of God as well for himself. Well, uh, you have these final verses here. They go away. They talk. Verse 31, it says, when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. And why did God put those verses in there? Who cares? You know, chapter 25, why all that stuff? If you read this, you really see the contrast between these men and Paul. They are just, they're helpless. You know, you read a secular history of these guys and you know how great they are and all the great things they did, you know, and all the ceremony and the pomp and everything. This is God's history. And it's interesting that when he talks about what the world considers great men, <laughs> it's a whole different light. And you see these guys in this chapter, they're, they're impotent. They can't do anything. Even when it comes to doing the right thing by Paul, they don't even do that because they're afraid, you know. But the point is, by contrast, look at Paul. This man stands up in chains, a prisoner at their mercy. And in the midst of this meeting, he is the one that emerges as the man who knows what's going on, doesn't he? He speaks with authority about God, about salvation, about forgiveness. Holding no bars. Man, he just stands out. And you see these other people just kind of caught in a dream world without God, you know, in their little make-believe of power and magnificence. And it's all a show. And so I think that's why God put it here. Chapter 26 is like a little jewel, you know, with Paul uh, set in the midst of this. And it's a, a, an encouragement to us, brothers and sisters. We've said it before. The simplest believer is wiser than all the great minds of the world combined that don't know God. And Paul demonstrates it here. Okay, don't be in intimidated or impressed by the power and the glory of the world. If you know Jesus Christ, you have a treasure that other people don't have and they need desperately. As Paul showed here by the way he spoke and the way he acted. So let's take an example from him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you this morning for the example of Paul. Lord, help us not to be uh, distracted or impressed by the things of the world and so taken away. But may we be like Paul, who said later, I have one aim in life, and that is to be found well-pleasing to the Lord. Lord, may that be our, our goal, and may we pursue it, Lord, with all our heart. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.